Well, welcome to Christian Challenge. I'm glad you guys are here. I'm glad I get to spend Thursday nights with you guys. I was just thinking, it's November. Like, I'm kind of at the end of the series. I'm going to be home in, I don't know, maybe six weeks on a Thursday night, and it'll feel so weird not being with you guys. Probably watching a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie, wondering if I can predict the ending. And um, I'll Snapchat you if it surprises me, so... Don't expect any Snapchats from me. But um, the theme of tonight's message tonight is I entitled From Heartache to Hope. I am kind of wrapping up the end of this series. I'm not the last one. Um, it's close to the end. The series that we've been looking at all semester called Written for Our Instruction based on this verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, which says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so we've been looking at examples from the Old Testament of men and women who are good examples and some who are not so good examples and how these things aren't just haphazardly included in the Word of God, but were written for our instruction so that we would know how to live. So tonight I'd like to tell you the story of two women. In many ways their lives parallel, though they lived thousands of years apart. One woman I met this last summer and one woman, I don't know her name, but look forward to meeting her one day in heaven. And I'd like to tell you Elisa's story first um, because it's a really powerful story. And I don't know if you, like me, sometimes sit in those very seats and hear these stories about how God provided and things God didn't think. Wow, wouldn't it be cool if God did anything like that today? And this summer, I got to spend just one week in North Africa, and I felt like just the kindness of God let me just see this incredible story of what he was doing in the far corners of the world to remind me that God is a God who is drawing people all over the world to himself using what we would think of as like really bizarre and crazy means, but are very culturally relevant because God who created cultures and languages and ethnicities speaks to people and draws their hearts in very unique ways. So Elise grew up in a village um, outside of a city of a million people. In the city that I was in, there are four known believing families in a city of a million people. So that means like parents and maybe one or more chi- like child or children believe. So it's a, it's a pretty spiritually dark place. But Elise grew out, up outside of that city. Um, her older sister was probably a lot like me, the, the black and white, the rule follower, the driven one, um, probably bossed her younger rebellious sister around and told her that, you know, the things that she should have done differently. Um, Elise was a self-proclaimed rebel. And so um, at 20 years old, she ended up pregnant and unmarried. And I don't think, I know some of you may be 20, and I don't think your parents would be thrilled about that, um, but in a Muslim country is even worse news to her family. And so... In her desperation and in her hopelessness, she decided to drink bleach in order to kill the baby growing inside of her. But as only our God can do, he protected not only her life, but the life of her unborn son. And so he lived, and she ended up marrying the father of her son. But that man was terribly abusive, so abusive that in the country I went to, uh, modesty is one of the high values, and so even her modest clothing could not cover up the wounds and the bruising that were being inflicted on her at home. And so I met her hearing this story from my friend, because my friend said, I want you to have a traditional meal, and so I've invited a friend over, Elise, to make food for you so you can taste this traditional meal, because I 
was there during Ramadan. And so if you know about Ramadan, they typically fast during the day, so there wasn't a lot of places to eat. But we were not fasting. Um, we were eating, but um, Elise needed help, and she needed money, and she needed food. And so it was a great way to provide for her in a way that wasn't humiliating or not embarrassing to her, knowing that she had a need. And so I'm going to pause in Elise's story and talk a little bit about another woman whose life parallels also was desperate and hopeless and in need. And then at the end, I'll wrap up. So you know Elise is alive. This is like the proof of life photo. I met her. Um, This is her making, this is the dish. It was like prunes and goat, I think is what it was. was. Maybe lamb. I'm not quite sure. It was delicious. Um, She's an amazing, amazing cook. But I'll pause there in the story, and then we're going to rewind thousands of years to another woman who was hopeless and desperate, and God showed up in a really neat way in her life as well. I don't know, maybe like you and Elise, you can relate to just feeling that, like, you know, why God? Why are these things happening in my life? Yeah, there are consequences to choices that I've made, but this just seems harder than other people's lives. And so my prayer tonight in hearing Elise's story and hearing the story of this widow is that the eyes of your heart would be drawn to the God who loves you, who created you, who made a way for you to know him, and he sees you in whatever situation that you're in right now. So before we talk about this widow, that we don't know her name, I'm going to just share with you a little bit of context so you kind of know what's going on in the background of the story. So when Israel had no godly king, God would raise up a prophet as his mouthpiece. So this is King Ahab. Jeremy talked about him several weeks ago, if you guys remember. Um, He was a really, really wicked king. In fact, it is said about him, he did more to revoke the Lord than all the kings before him. So that was quite the label on this man. He was pretty bad. He married Jezebel. You know, sometimes you you may not even know that Jezebel was a real person. You never, no girl ever wants to be called Jezebel. Like, that's just, no, don't ever, ever even go there. Um, She was a foreign woman. She uh, worshiped Baal. She brought in idolatry. She was just wicked to the core as well. And she pretty much ran the country, which was not a good thing, as you can tell. So God sent Elijah to warn Ahab and say, hey, this is what's going to happen. There's not going to be any rain. There's not even going to be dew. That's how bad it's going to get for several years. So Elijah like announces this and then runs and hides because a wicked king is not going to respond. No king is going to respond to this well, but a wicked king for sure is going to hunt him down. So God sends him to this ravine that's kind of protected. There's a brook there, so he's able to have fresh water. And miraculously, these birds, ravens, bring him meat to provide so he has something to eat. But as a drought and famine progress that brook dries up as well. So God sent him to this widow in Zarephath. But Zarephath is where Jezebel's dad is ruling. So it's not like he's going to a safer place. It's actually far more dangerous. And he has to travel 100 miles to get there. So that's where we're entering the story is the brook is dried up. Elijah is thirsty. Elijah is hungry. And he's on the move. So we're looking at 1 Kings 17, starting verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow to supply you with food. So I think there's a map up here. Um, It was a hundred mile trek from the brook where he was to Zarephath. It was open, unprotected land. He was a wanted man. Ahab had his army out searching for him. This was not a safe trek. And remember, it's also a drought. I'm sure this man was so thirsty. I mean, I can walk down Truesdale and want something to drink. Um, and this is like dangerous fighting for like 
scared for his life. He's very thirsty, I'm sure. So usually when you kind of think of a man of God, you think the man of God is going to provide provisions or something else for someone else in need. But that is not the plan that God had in this situation. So God sent him to a widow. A widow who was also impacted by the widespread famine and the drought. So a widow who was a Gentile. She was an outcast racially. She was also a pagan. She worshipped Baal. So she was an outcast religiously because um, Elijah was from the Jews and they worshipped Jehovah God. She was a woman, so she was an outcast in her gender. And she was a widow. She was an outcast economically. She had nothing. There was no social security system. There was no welfare. There was no government assistance to help meet her needs. And God chose this weak, broken woman to be part of something that would influence people for generations and generations and generations. He chose to include this in his story that people will read. So we're going to move on to verse 10. So he went, Elijah left this brook, this area that had dried up, and he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water from your jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a slice of bread. This is her response. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of jar, a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. That's how she responds to this man. So picture this scene, this like first impression here of what's going on. This woman, I would imagine, it was gaunt, was very frail. I don't know how many of you have ever been to Germany. Jen and I were on a mission trip to Germany. Someone went to a concentration camp, and you see those photos of people who were literally starving to death. In my mind, that's why I see this woman who had just skin and bones picking up sticks so she could eat and then she could die. And then this man who's traveled this far journey that's really, really thirsty, and he has a need. And I'm sure he's really, really hungry at that point, too. And so she's, this is what she's thinking. This is my last meal. I'm going to eat this, and then I'm going to die. I mean, we, we say that, I'm, so, I'm starving, I'm going to die if I don't get blah, blah, blah. Like, no, this was her reality. This wasn't an exaggeration at all. Imagine what that was like for her and for her son. Can you imagine having a conversation with your child? This is it. I'm sure she was resourceful, as resourceful as she could be in the midst of a famine and a drought and having no resources. She was at the end of her rope. What would you be thinking if it was you? This is my thought that was running through my mind, is I'd be like, Mrs. Smith has like 10 extra pounds. I think she's going to last a couple more weeks. Go ask her. Ask someone else. Don't ask me. I've got nothing. This is the heart of a mom. Like I'm sure she wasn't eating more than she had to just to stay alive to help her son. She might not even have wanted, I was thinking, would I have wanted to live longer to watch my son die? Like how awful would that be? And how would you respond if some strange man came up and asked you to give you your ingredients for your last meal on earth? I think I just would have said, no way. Figure it out yourself. Like, I don't know. I don't know that I would have had that kind of faith. But Elijah doesn't rebuke her. This is what Elijah responds to her saying in verse 13. Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. 
The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Wow, what kind of promise is that to a woman who has barely had enough to eat for a long time? Because you see, Elijah had experienced God's provision at the brook. These birds brought him food. The water was there. Elijah knew that God was a faithful God and that he could be trusted. He obeyed God and he left. He walked through enemy territory for 100 miles and he arrived unscathed. This man knew what God was capable of. He knew what she had and what she was lacking. He didn't doubt that she was exaggerating where she was, but he knew that his God could provide and his God could do something that she had never factored in at all. It was interesting because God told Elijah to go and he went. And then Elijah tells the widow, go and do. And he asks her to practice something, that same kind of obedience that he had to a God that she didn't follow, nor did she worship. And the crazy thing is, is she did it. You see in verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah told her to do. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Wow. Every day she had enough. I am blown away by the faith and obedience of this woman. Those verbs, she went and she did. She went and she did. What obedience you see there. Obedience plus the faithfulness of God leads to an incredible story. So she didn't have this. This is in my pantry. She didn't have flour from Ralph's or oil from Trader Joe's. I was looking for my ancient pottery. I'm all out. I think it's at the Smithsonian. Um, I don't have any anything that would work with this illustration, but God didn't give her money in the bank for her to go and buy jars of oil that she could just store at home and stockpile flour. She didn't have either of these things. Every day she had enough. She had to trust God that when she went in with that rusty old spoon or whatever she used, that there was going to be enough in there for that day. And then she had the faith to do it again day after day after day, and not just feed her family, but also this man that was living in her home. Day after day after day, she had to trust him. And one thing that we have in common with her is that God invites us to trust him as well, that she depended on the promises of God without having what you and I have today. She did not have a Bible. Many of you have your Bibles open right now. She didn't have that. I'm sure she was illiterate. We have the scriptures, we have a Bible, you guys are all literate, you're at USC. She did not have the Holy Spirit that lives inside believers today. She didn't have the promise of Jesus, he had not come yet. Those are the things that we have, and God invites us to trust him. It should be so much easier, right, for us to trust him, and yet it's not easy for me to trust him. And I have oil and flour and a pantry full of food. There's probably rotten fruit in my fridge. I have more than enough. And it's hard to trust him day after day after day. But his invitation to her is the same invitation he has for us. Trust me, Aaron. Trust me. And sometimes we think that, like, if I'm trusting you and you're proving yourself faithful, then it should get easier, right? Like, look at how I trusted you in this. Aren't you going to reward me with, like, at least a couple years of an easy life? Like, at least some comfort, some money in the bank account, Something, not, a good car, you know, a great career. My jobs, I start off my salary, I can pay off all my student loans within the first year. Like, this is the kind of life. I obey you and then you do this, God. And that's not how God works. You see, actually in this widow's life, 
her life got even harder. We don't know how much later, but it says in verse 17, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? We don't know what kind of illness he had. It was an illness so severe that he died. There was no breath in his lungs. His heart had stopped beating. And her response was so natural. Just to blame the first person you see, to take it out on the person that's closest to you. In grief, we often say things we regret. I know that I have before. In the pain and in the loss, just want to take it out on someone else because you don't want to feel that kind of hurt anymore. But Elijah's response is so beautiful and so gentle. He tells her in verse 19, he says, Give me your son, Elijah replied. And he took him from her arms and he carried him to the upper room where he was staying. And he laid him on his bed and he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. What you see in his response is he doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't argue with her. He doesn't defend himself or God at all. He doesn't question God or fall apart in front of her. He just says, give me your son. And he just takes her son, her lifeless son, from her arms and carries him up to the room where he'd been saying, where I'm sure he had spent countless hours in prayer there and lies him on the bed. While he is silent before the widow, he is not silent before God. And he cries out to God to intervene. And what is so interesting is that up to this point in scripture, there is absolutely no account of anyone coming back from the dead. So what Elijah is actually asking is there was like no manual. It wasn't like Elijah had heard of so-and-so down the road and the same thing had happened to them and their son came back from the dead. No, Elijah is asking something of God that Elijah had never heard of. He is trusting God to do something that is utterly impossible. And this is what happened. In verse 22, he says, The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. What is so remarkable is that this woman is not impressed with Elijah. That this woman is impressed with Elijah's God. That she sees God. In all of this, that God chose to reveal himself through her trouble. That the same God who can prevent death by supplying oil and flour every day to preserve life is the same God who can reverse death. That's how powerful our God is. He chooses to act in ways that seem crazy to us. And you may wonder in your life, you're like, why didn't God do that in my life? I've sit over a casket and begged it to be reversed. I know many of you have done that as well. That there are things in your life that you're like, God, you could have done something different. It didn't have to end this way. But it did. And God uses those things in our life to accomplish his story that is much bigger than our own. 
because he's doing things that we can't understand. That in that woman's life, I'm sure the town heard about this, this man, this miraculous thing that happened to her son. That the word of God, we read this story today thousands of years later, that it was been preserved. Because it's true. Because it's not something that's just made up or fiction. It's not a fable, like Aesop's fable. But this really happened. And just like his eye was on that widow and he saw her pain and he saw her grief, he sees you and he cares about you and he's interested in your life. That he knows that your group project is unraveling and you don't know what you're going to do. He knows that you don't understand the material and calculus and you may not get into med school if you don't get this grade on this midterm or this final. He cares that your marriage, your parents' marriage is disintegrating and you may not go home to that same home at Christmas. He knows about the rejection that you faced, the hurt that's buried deep inside. He's not immune to that. He sees it all. Just like his eye was on the widow and my friend Elise, his eye is on you. And just like in their life, he used Elijah in this widow's life and uses unexpected people in our lives to bring hope and to bring peace and to bring just a glimmer of perspective when we lost hope in the, in the hardness of life. You see, Jesus claimed to be the resurrection and the life, and he still is that today. He conquered death. He defeated sin, not so that our lives would be easy and comfortable, but so that we could have a relationship with God, so that we could experience the hope that surpasses your GPA and your internship and your career and the diagnosis, that there is a hope that awaits that this is not our home And this trouble will one day be behind us. But for now, we get to walk through this barren, seems like almost like a minefield. You don't know where you're going and wondering, what am I going to step on next? But there's a God who is with you. He hasn't abandoned you and he hasn't left you alone, that he sees you. So I'd like to go back to finish the story of Elise. You see, Elise heard the gospel when she was about 11 or 12. Her older sister, Heidi, somehow learned English and got a job in the city where my friends live. And she began teaching Arabic to Westerners. Westerners who had decided that there's enough Americans living the American dream. Let's go live among people who have never heard this hope, who have never heard of a God who can bring life from death. And so as these Westerners began to practice Arabic with Heidi, they began to share stories of Jesus. That Jesus isn't just a teacher. He isn't just a prophet. That he is the Messiah. He is God's son. And he came to live this perfect, sinless life to make a way for us to have a relationship with God. And so this was just news to her. And so she decided one day that that the gospel was true and that she wanted to surrender her life to that. And she went back to her village and she shared it with her family and they were like, no way, I'm not interested in that at all. And Elisa's life did not get easier. In fact, it got harder. As I was mentioning with the abuse, she'd heard the gospel just rebelled in her life. And then... Again, when she contemplated ending her life, God showed up. And remember how I talked about earlier that God is a God of languages and cultures, and he uses things very specifically in different cultures to reveal himself and to make himself known that are relevant and contextualized to that culture. So things that you're like, I've never heard of God doing that here. He may, and he can do that here, but it's oftentimes he does these things because that's what's Um, relevant in that culture. So this is going to sound a little crazy, but I was there and I heard this. It was not in English, but my friends were translating. So I was with my friends. Elise had just made dinner 
She was working on doing henna on my arm. She's like a henna masterpiece. And she's sharing this story. And this is the first time that my friends had heard this story too. So they were translating and they were so excited because they knew that something different was going on with Elise. Just her smile, her demeanor, everything had changed. I'd never met her before. So I, and I don't speak a lick of Arabic. I can greet someone in Arabic and I can say thank you. And that is the extent of it. So I was just smiling and sitting there and just watching this go back and forth. So she began to share this story. But one night on a really, really difficult, after a difficult day, she desired to no longer live and that Jesus visited her in a dream. And in this dream, he promised her three things, that he was with her and that he would help her and that she did not need to be afraid. And two days later, a foreign woman who was a believer approached her and said, if you want to leave, I will help you leave your husband. I mean, Elise is uneducated. She doesn't, I'm not sure she's literate. What kind of job awaits her? She has a son she has to provide for. There's a lot of different pieces. She lives in a culture where it's very hard for women to get work. It's very hard for women to be educated. And so there was a lot in this young mom's mind, a lot she had to consider. So she decided to leave her husband and she stayed uh, with this foreign woman for one night. You know, when there's an abusive situation, like it's really key to like move people around quickly. And so the person who's trying to find them cannot find them quickly. So this foreign woman hosted her, and that night she had a second dream. And Jesus assured her in this dream um, that he was with her and that he would do just what he had promised, that she did not need to be afraid, that he would help her. So she woke up again, and like this is really new to her. She doesn't know what to do. So they moved her from this foreign family's house, this Western family, to a group of a family that lives in North Africa that are actually of that nationality, and she stayed with them. And she had another dream. And in that dream, Jesus pointed out to her that all the people who had helped her were followers of him. That every person who had come to her aid thus far in her life had been a follower of Jesus. So she woke up that morning and we're talking to these people who are just housing her, trying to figure out, you know, where can we get this woman away to safety? And they explained the gospel to her again. She had heard it. Seeds of truth had been planted years earlier. And at that moment, in her helpless, hopeless state, she decided that's what she was looking for. That the hope that she was trying to find outside of Jesus was impossible to find. And she chose to place her hope and her faith in Jesus. And it was so cool to be in that room as my friends were hearing this for the first time. You know, when, when people decide to follow Jesus, here we get so excited and we want to throw this party. And they were so excited. But you know, the first thing they talked to her about was persecution. Because that's the reality in her life. She lives in a place where it is hostile to the gospel and her life is going to be very hard. And we took her home that night, and it was dark. And we walk into this cinder block shack with no roof on top of it. There's a pomegranate tree growing in her living room. The only door to the place is the front door. There's just curtains. It was just, I just wanted to weep. Because I thought, oh, Aaron, you have a car. You have carpet. You have an apartment. You have air conditioning. You have, you have all of these things, and you are so ungrateful. And this woman is just so full of hope because of what Jesus has rescued her from and rescued her to, this abundant life. And it was such a wake-up call for me to be reminded that God sees and that God rescues and that he redeems. And he uses all sorts of people to do that. And it motivated me, and I hope it motivates you, to be people who extend hope to others, that we are surrounded each and every day by people who need hope. The common denominator in both of these stories 
is that God used people to be his mouthpiece, that God used people to bring hope, followers of him. So I would like to challenge you with three things before I leave. That the first thing is that you would pay attention to the people around you. You would pay attention to the people around you, that you would get to know people, that you would just introduce yourself in class. I mean, it's November, you can still do that. Like, I'm sorry, this is awkward. We've sat by each other for three months, but what's your name? Like, just, it's not too late to get to know people. It's never too late to smile and just to be like, what'd you do last night? Just begin a conversation. It doesn't have to be crazy hard. There are people all around you who need hope. Think about that right now. Who is someone in your life that needs hope? Think of who they are. But it's not enough just to identify who that person is. You've got to get involved in their life. Like It's not like you just put a teaspoon of hope and then they're filled with hope and last forever. No, no, we have to get involved in life and it's not easy and it gets messy, but it has eternal significance. And so begin with a conversation. Get to know people around you. And then as you get to know people, you begin to recognize, wow, I think she had a, a bad day. Like she's not smiling as much. Seems, things just seem off. Then you can ask questions. Get to know her and be able to share this hope that you have. The second thing I would encourage you to do is to choose to be open and honest. To let people know your stories. We each have pain. We each have had situations where there was no hope. Don't shy away from sharing those. Get to know each other's stories so you know and you can be hopeful people in each other's lives, reminding each other of truth. It was so interesting. I spent some time in Afghanistan several years ago, and that's what we were told to do is to share our stories of pain. And I was like, okay. And they said again and again, share your stories of pain because that's what these people have known, that there's no movies with happy endings in Afghanistan because they don't, they don't think like that. That's American way of thinking. And so it was interesting sharing you know, my story with these girls. And I, had, I lost my dad at 21. Well, to lose someone at 21, I was ancient. They had grown up with the Taliban. They'd grown up with brothers and fathers and uncles and cousins being killed from a very young age. Many of them were already sold into marriage at six years old. Their pain and my pain, they were on very different scales. But you know, they didn't, ju- they, they didn't judge my pain. I didn't feel judged at all. I think it was just nice for them to know, like, we've all hurt. It's not, we don't share our stories of pain to compare, like, my life's been so much harder than your life. Oh my gosh, that's not the point at all. But to to go deeper in each other's lives, to share hearts and lives with each other, because God can really use that. I, my life has not been touched by divorce, but it's been touched by death. But some of you have been touched by divorce. So if I meet someone who's going through struggling with that, I can say, oh, my friend went through something similar. Let's have coffee. I'd love for you guys to meet and you can get to know each other. So you can know each other's stories and that can really help this community grow as well. And the last thing I would encourage you is to express gratitude that each of us have experienced a hopelessness and someone else has brought hope into that. So think of someone that you can thank. This is the season of Thanksgiving. It doesn't have to just be this month, but cultivate it all year round. But take time tonight or tomorrow. I would encourage writing a note. I know that's kind of foreign. You can like Facebook message someone. You could send an email. Snapchat deletes really fast so then they couldn't look back at it. But I mean, whatever means for you to say you're grateful, do it. Just say you're grateful. And I would like to end with this last verse that I would just, my prayer that would characterize us as followers of Jesus. It says in Psalm 71, 14 through 15, as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your saving acts all day long. 
though I know not how to relate them all. That we would be people who, yeah, get knocked down and life is, is tough, but that we remember our hope is not in what's here on earth, that our hope is in Jesus and that his promise is true. It always matters who makes the promise. And he is the promise keeper. He never fails. He is faithful. So let me pray and then I'll welcome back the worship team. Father, thank you that you are a hope-giving God, that we only know what hope is because of you. Thank you that you came to bring us hope. Thanks for Elise. Thanks for the opportunity to meet her. I pray that you would provide her with a job, that you would meet her needs, that she would continue to grow in her relationship with you, and that she would um, become an ambassador of hope to those around her. I pray that this room would be filled with people of hope, and we would carry it out to this campus, to the city, to the state, this nation, and to the world, um, that we would be ambassadors of hope wherever we go. We ask these things in your name. Amen.